Hey, that's, that's where it all starts. I mean, you can find my, my first presentation on stage from 2012. Don't. You can. <laughs> but it's, it's fucking horrible, right? And it's, it's, it, the only thing that was good about it was actually what I touched on was that there were some highlights in the presentation that even just because it was 1% better than other people, you realize, you're like, hey, this is a path to progress. This, this is actually better than what I thought was possible. And that encourages you down that road. I'm afraid too many people never get to that point. Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the immensely powerful art of storytelling. And we learn how to harness it to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorf. And I'm Kevin. Kev, you know I have some I have some strong opinions, some hot takes. Oh, um, you do? If you can't hear, Kevin's voice is dripping with sarcasm because I'm known to go off for like a long time on like very small things. And one of those things is the saying, don't judge a book by its cover. And let me explain here. I mean, the physically for judging books. I'm talking paperback books, okay? I'm not talking about life or identity. I'm talking about physical paperback books. I am constantly judging the books I buy based on the cover. If there's something with a really cool cover, like a, I don't know, a rabbit falling down some sort of hole and it's like colorful and looks weird, I'm like, I'm going to pick it up and see what that is. I'm constantly comparing books by their cover because that's what draws me in. Because, you know, covers of books are such a unique, important part of storytelling because it's marketing. It's all just marketing. You, you design a cover, illustrate it, pay someone to sell your book because that first view of shelf space is so important to the industry. Is that why you have such a ridiculous collection of comic books? How many have you have? Oh, well, I guess the, the closest number is, as my parents put it, too many. Is that the number? Okay. Um, obsession is also words that have been used. Um, problem, go make some friends. Anyways, <laughs> but... When we pick something up and we look at it, in seconds our brains take jumps, our brains make assumptions. So creating art that captivates someone and pulls someone in, that's as much storytelling as what's in the book. That's all I'm saying. So next time when you're comparing books and judging them by their covers, ask yourself this, what story is this cover telling? And why am I so intrigued by it? And will that relate to the story inside? And to segue into this week's guest, we are talking with someone who has a really interesting book coming out that I really like the cover of. <laughs> Kevin, who are we talking to today? Neil Hoyne is our expert storyteller for the week. Neil is a fellow UCLA Anderson alum who graduated in 2009. Not, not the easiest time to find a job back then, but Neil um, found his way into analytics out of business school. Uh, eventually found his way into Google and has been working there for the past 10 years. Uh, he right now serves as the chief measurement strategist there. I was fortunate enough to have met Neil uh, at a campus event, shout out UCLA MSBA, and was so captivated by his stories and insights that I thought, you know, we just had to get him on the show and, and learn more about him. And it's going to be uh, a really fun one uh, where we talk about storytelling in the business world and uh, for technical people and beyond. And we're going to talk about his new book, Converted, The Data-Driven Way 
to win customers' hearts. Full confession, I don't read a lot of data books, but this is one where I'm actually really drawn into. So let's get into it. Today, we are so glad to be joined by Neil Hoyne, who is a great storyteller. I will tell you his story, but I should really leave it to him to tell his own story. So Neil, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? What is my story? Uh, it's still under development is the best way I'd put it. Um, but let's en encapsulate the, the basics behind it. It started off in really computer science and programming, then somehow went into marketing and entrepreneurship. Weird twists in turn pulled me out of my hometown of Chicago into Los Angeles, where I was at UCLA for two years. What started off as a promising economic circumstance leading to a quick decline, and we're talking now 2008, where I had classmates who came back after grinding it out after long internships, companies that were around for decades, suddenly collapsing and declining, thinking about the Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns of the world. And then finding myself in 2009 with a single job offer from a company to do data and analytics in Silicon Valley. Uh, so went north to work for that company. We're in the second week of that job. They laid off a third of the company, which was a sobering moment. Um, but it was interesting because I got to just spend time with data and analytics. Again, not a field that I ever thought I'd be into. But you realize that if they're laying off everybody in the company, you, you focus very quickly on how you can create, as they talk in MBA parlance, how you create some type of value out of anything. And, uh, you know, that's, that was an interesting job. You know, you come out of grad school and you're just grateful to have anything, especially for, you know, a small company. I wish the circumstances were better, but you certainly understand them. Uh, but then after a while, just when you're in the Valley, you start interacting with people from the large tech companies, the Apples, the Facebooks, the Netflixes, and of course, the Googles of the world. And you start thinking, you're like, wow, these are some really smart people. Like, I'd like to, to hang out with them. I love the people I worked with, but these people like, you know, Vint Cerf, who practically invented the internet, works at Google. So to be considered a colleague uh, of his at that time, when they were uh, the company was just under 20,000 employees, that's really where it took my career. Uh, and in that case, just for the past, what's now been 11 years, working entirely in analytics and data and measurement at the company, which sounds like the antithesis of storytelling to anybody. But what you find, what we'll probably end up discussing here is the importance of storytelling, especially in quantitative fields where on their own, what you see in the numbers, what you see in charts don't make a lot of sense. They're not going to tell their own stories. So I've just found over the past decade or so the importance of that to not only be successful within one's own career, but also to be successful in terms of just helping anybody use what your company's doing, what your team's doing in their daily lives. You know, Neil, you hit that right on uh, the, we've had a debate about this. Thing, but <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there uh, with the intersection of storytelling and intersection of technical. And it's one of the huge reasons we have this show. And when we bring someone on who's like highly technical, people are like, well, is that a storyteller? They're expecting the author of some amazing book. And we're like, you know, the important part of our show is that it's everyday storytelling. It's the fact that everyone is storytellers. And that's how you thrive and move up in your career. Um, but before we get too deep into that, I would love to kind of double click on something you were saying about, you know, graduating in 2008 and 2009 and what a crazy time that was. Mm -hmm. um, it's curious because I remember when I was interning a few years ago, I was talking to someone else who graduated in 08 and I was like, man, that, that had to be really, really tough. And 
And I was like, well, thank God that things are going well now when I'm about to graduate in 2020. Um, this was in the summer of 2019. Um, so I was, would love to hear about kind of some of the parallels you saw from graduating in 08 uh, with the people graduating in 2020 and what graduating in 08 meant to your overall story and how ultimately looking back, you learned from that. You know, I would say with every generation is faced with their own unique circumstances when it comes to the job hunt. Um, during that time, what you saw was people had to really confront the reality of what type of value could they offer to companies, which from a storytelling aspect is key because you're going into companies really that have a few positions, a lot of competition, which meant that people that were interested in getting in a job at that time in, say, investment banking ended up trickling down and saying, well, maybe I'll try consulting. Uh, consulting people saying, well, there's not enough consulting jobs. I'll try marketing. And as they moved across, it was no longer, this is my dream job where I want to end up. It's where can I convince somebody that I can provide some type of value? What can I offer? And MBA students in particular talk a lot about career switching. And then I think when we had our orientation, you see half the class raise their hands and say, I'm going to use my MBA to get into a new career. So you're effectively going in with the same skills as every other MBA that's a career switcher. And you're trying to say, well, this is why you should take a chance on me. You need to learn how to tell your story to that company. And it actually, it, it's, it's humbling because it's less to say, well, look at all these opportunities and more to say, I need to convince a company to take that chance on me. Now, when we look at the current job market here in, in 2022, uh, it seems like there are ample opportunities. It's every day I talk to companies and they say, look, we can't get enough people to apply to the roles that we have. And when I talk to MBA students, they're like, wow, look at all the jobs that are available to us and all the people that want us. And that also presents an interesting problem. Now, not so much with storytelling, but how do you decide what the right opportunity is? People look at me and they're like, you only had one opportunity. There wasn't a good or bad decision. The circumstances were what they were. You had to take that job. Now it's to say, well, I have four or five different job offers. What criteria do I use to decide what is the best job for me? complicating it as well is that I know some people who have recently gone into the job market into new companies and they're finding with the turnover being where it is, they're coming into teams that aren't as cohesive as they used to be. Teams that are entirely virtual teams where maybe half the people just started in the last 12 months themselves, where there's not a lot of historical knowledge. And so it's just a different set of skills with a different set of problems. So I think in one year it was, you know, how do we tell that story of value to get the chance to do the job? And now it's just a different question to say, where do I want to end up? And am I going to end up in a great team and have great career prospects, given all the uncertainty in the market as to how things will shape up post-COVID? And I look and I'm like, well, that has to be a nice problem. I had one option and you just have to make the most of it. And with the one option you had, you were able to you know, now uh, become uh, the chief measurement strategist at Google, uh, which is a very interesting title. Um, so can you tell us a bit about, you know, what does that role mean and how do you apply storytelling in your line of work? The, the easiest way to look at it is um, we have about 16,000 large advertisers, large advertisers, companies that will spend several million dollars a year uh, with Google. And the, the challenge that I'm tasked with is how to get them to more effectively use their data. Now, people will think immediately that that ties to advertising or spending more money with Google. It doesn't. It's simply to make the company itself, to make the advertiser more successful, uh, regardless of where that money ends up. But just to say that we know data is a powerful enabler of growth, how do we get there? And in my case, what I have the pleasure of doing is really working across hundreds, if not thousands of these companies 
uh, every couple of years and just understanding what does great look like? What do great companies do? Uh, how do they test? How do they use data? And what uh, I've consistently found as one of the key differentiators is that companies that are successful with data know how to tell great stories. And so if you think about there's really when we look at data, and let's actually, let's take a step back. Let's talk about data as a whole. What are we really talking about? Uh, the way that I look at it is in a digital in a digital landscape where people are going to websites and using mobile apps, data really is the language by which we understand these customers. Data is what sits in between. So in a physical setting, in a retail store, you can see shoppers come in. You can interact with them directly. You don't get that online. You just get little numbers that say, well, one person came in from New York. One person came in from California. And, and the data is all that's left behind from that visit for you to study and for you to understand and what most companies do is they're great at hiring people that know how to capture that data. Uh, so build cloud systems, if you will, uh, to integrate it. They know people that are really good at analyzing that data to build reports and dashboards. They're just now learning that importance of storytelling to say, how do we hire people that can make sense of these reports and these dashboards and tell other people in the organization what the hell any of it means? Because oftentimes we would hope that a great dashboard will tell us what to do. It doesn't. Sales went up X percent last week. Why does that matter? What do I do next? Uh, more people came from this site or that site. This campaign was successful or not. It doesn't get into that deeper story. And I think it's actually the wrong place to say that the analysts themselves are responsible for doing it. To put that on their shoulders to say, you have to be really great at something like SQL or R. You have to be really great at statistics. And you have to know how to tell salespeople what they should do with this data. It doesn't happen. Or worse, you should be able to talk to the salespeople and figure out how that influences your analysis. It's too aspirational. That's not what you get out of these people. So instead, what you see is really great companies uh, bringing into a third class to say, how do we find people that can tell stories that out of these data reports and these dashboards, how do we make it accessible to people in the organization that look at the world in a fundamentally different way? And how do we take their view and translate it back to the way that analysts and these data architects, for the lack of a better term, look at their world. Because if we can't connect the two, what we get is we get a really large data function where they're doing some really complicated, really great things. And everyone else in the organization saying, hey, I know we have a big data team and we have a lot of data, but I still use intuition for my own decision making. And so storytelling is translation it's just being able to connect what we have to indirectly observe through this messy pile of data and turning it into something useful that other people can really internalize and apply to their own work and their own experience. You know, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating kind of view of the kind, like kind of data sales team dynamic uh, because it's such an important part of so many of these tech companies. Um, I would love to kind of go deep on that and say you are sure. a data person and you're in a position where you need to present the data to a sales team from their information, right? Mm -hmm. How do you kind of mine and ask the right questions of that sales team to translate that into direct or useful information to not only to them, but the rest of the company? So I'd say the first thing is if somebody comes to you and says, hey, you ran this analysis for sales, go tell the story to sales. I think you're already behind. Right, because now you have a deadline. You're like, oh, I got a week to figure this out. It has to be an ongoing process. Now, the part that I find most successful, both through my own work and through observing other companies, is that the data and analytics teams, people that are working with this data, are constantly challenged 
to tell their story to other people. They don't wait for presentations. They don't wait for single moments. It becomes part of their job. And the most successful people, believe it or not, uh, at this, have built an audience, honestly, of people that don't care at all about their work. Now, when you talk to other data and analytics people, like when I go, if I talk about machine learning or AI to other people who are interested in AI and machine learning, it is a natural audience. We connect and the bar is much lower for the story that I'm about to tell because they already showed up. They self-select and said, I'm interested in this. I'm curious about the people that just really have no idea what I'm doing. Now, in the past, it, I always, I sometimes borrow with my wife is she loves the work that I do and she's, she's great at listening, but there was a time where it was like, look, I, I, she started off in healthcare. Well, what interest does she have in advertising? And that indirectly taught me, she's like, well, how do I make this relevant for someone that really doesn't understand the language? But that's also uh, accelerated to now where some of the best coaches I work with through Google are actually actors. So this is kind of strange that I work with a talented actors. This guy, this guy, his name's Mark Dannenberg out of Chicago, uh, and he also does coaching. And I have to try to tell him my story. This is the exercise we do. This is why I, I work with him as a coach is because he has absolutely no background in marketing or data science. And so terminology that we use, we use say, oh, confidence interval. It means nothing to him. Now, everybody else that's, that's played around with analytics, oh, okay, I know what confidence intervals are. I know what sample sizes. I use that in a story and immediately he's going to raise his hand and be like, I'm lost. What did you just say? And so a challenge, the first thing you want to do is if you want to become a great storyteller, so you have to find people that will challenge your assumptions in your language, that will simplify the language down. Things that if you're presenting in front of large audiences, there's not going to be a sales executive that raises their hand. It's like, hey, so I'm the VP, but I have no idea what you're saying and you're only on slide two. Instead, they're just going to be very polite and they're just going to follow along, but it loses its effectiveness. You lose their interest. And, and so the first thing is to understand someone that can challenge that language. The second thing is if they have no interest in your subject, how do you keep them around? You know, like we generally audiences are very polite. They will sit through in your entire presentation. You need to find an audience that they're going to move on to another subject. They're going to direct the conversation and you need to figure out how you can capture their attention. And then the third challenge in the area that you develop on is how do you craft a story that plays to their experiences, their intuition, and their view of the world. In other words, how do you tell a story that after they leave that story, not only do they remember how they feel, but they can internalize the lesson in their own work. They're not simply repeating your words and saying, oh, if only I had that sheet bag. It's the takeaway of any story. They have to realize how they felt and how it's going to change the work that they do. Now, that's all to say that if you're presenting to these types of groups, these audiences, you have to start on this early. You have to engage these groups early to figure out how you start telling the stories of your work instead of waiting for the big presentation. If you wait for the big presentation to say, I'm just going to craft one great story, you better hope that you have a lot of months to catch up on the work that you should have been putting in early on. It's something we talk about a lot here, that idea of people speak in different languages. You know, they do. It's about understanding the words they're using. So it's kind of like talking to the sales team and getting a good understanding of what matters to them. Yes. And it's sometimes it's, it's even just listening. It's sitting in on their presentations and realizing how they tell stories to each other. And it's not, and I encourage you to get a sense as to, and this is really exposure to different types of stories. If we really distill it down to say, how do salespeople versus consultants versus say VCs 
talk about storytelling? How do they use, what language do they use? And some of it is, is kind of fun to chuckle at. Whenever I work with people in finance, like they, whenever they ask a question, somehow it always relates where they're always going to say, Hey, can you, can you give me more color on this? Or if I ever ask them a question with consultants, they know the exact slide in a deck and they can't answer that question without first referencing the slide. Be like, so how do you think about this market? Well, and they always like, if you look at slide 62, like we answered that and you should have memorized the deck, that's the way they <laughs> perceive problems. And that's fine. But that's their expectation when I go in to present. They, they expect to have the slides and the reference materials in front of them. That's their baseline. Now, you have all those individual groups and you want to get that exposure. But I still say for any great storyteller, the idea is almost, and this is kind of that, if you have like a Maslow's hierarchy equivalent of storytelling, this would be at the very top is to say, can you build a story? Can you tell a story that transcends the work boundaries, the organizational boundaries, something that talks to people in their real life experiences? So let's make this practical for everyone listening here. If we're talking about a story, and I work in advertising, if I talk about a story in the context to say, this is what you should do to your website, Right, you should position it this way and ask these questions. That is going to be in the view to the context for a salesperson. Well, I don't control the website for a website designer. Is this good UX? But if you transcend that and you say, let's talk about your experience as a customer on other websites. Well, now all of a sudden everyone has been in that position. That's a shared background, a shared view that you can build from. They can all picture themselves going to a website, interacting as a customer, frustrations they feel with other stores, other retail sites they've been on. And you can build from that to show what the opportunity is, and then they can figure out how to apply it into their own role. So if you're really good with storytelling, you're able to kind of pull people out of their specific role and bring it to something that's broader and more generalizable, which gives you a larger audience and is honestly a lot more fun. But I think what a lot of people do get hung up on that is this kind of that insecurity aspect of, like, well, I've done all this data work. And I want to show that like I know what I'm talking about. Right? I want to show all the data so they, 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 they trust my, um, I don't know, insights or trust my data powers, right? So can you tell me a little bit about how you break down that story internally and how you kind of grapple with that? So it's, it's kind of a roundabout way. The first thing I'll say is that most people I work with who aspire to be great storytellers don't have a lot of opportunities or go out and seek opportunities to tell great stories. And therefore, when those opportunities do arise, they're less likely to take those risks right? Here's your one shot to present to this audience. It's like the first time you've had this huge audience in a year, you're going to drop to what is safe, what is conservative, what is expected. You're not going to push the boundaries that far. And that limits them because then they say, well, this is the only time that I do it. And they really don't go as far as they can. The second thing that I tell people, and, and this is, it's not meant to be flippant. It's just meant to be the reality is that the more presentations you do, the more likely you are to have really bad presentations. Like I've been doing this for a decade. I could tell you some of the worst presentations. They are demoralizing. They're horrible. I had someone tweet on a presentation one time. They're like, this guy represents everything bad with this company. And, and, and it happens. But what you realize is that it's not the end of the world. And you realize what works and what doesn't work. And you become more comfortable pushing the envelope. And what happens is for every bad presentation you have, you will have a small number of presentations where you try something new that gets an incredibly positive response. 
So effectively, you start pushing the limits of what you're going to try. So the more content you do, the more times you're going to take a few risks of things you shouldn't. And you're going to try things that you haven't done before that work really well. And what's nice about it in both cases is that you start to realize where you move. When you get really bad presentations, one thing I learned is I will not take narratives from other people. And that's what happened in that poor presentation was that marketing gave me a presentation like, here, just get on stage. You're a great presenter. Present this narrative. And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. And I couldn't because they were not my words. I was not as passionate about the subject. And so I learned that's where the boundary shifts. I will not present that type. I will not do, as much as I can control it, panel discussions. Panel discussions are miserable. right? Like, what are, It'd be cool if they could be like podcasts like this. But no, what they really are is you have one moderator. You have four other people who you've never met before. Maybe you get a 20-minute prep call. And then the moderator goes person to person. Everyone agrees with everyone else's point. You know, and it's just like very polite statements and it's just boring. Well, and they force you to sit in a chair because if you get up and start moving around while everyone's sitting down, you look like an asshole. So you realize you move the boundaries. You say, look, all right, I'm not great with prepared remarks from other people. I'm not great personally doing panel presentations. I stay away from them. At the other time, you find on the positive side, you say, hey, if I can really engage the audience early on. So sometimes I will get off stage and I will start talking to people, which, by the way, drives AV teams nuts because they're trying to figure out how to do sound while you're wandering off the stage in front of a couple hundred people. But it gives you a sense of energy and you feel that energy back from the audience and you say, OK, I need to do this all the time because I love that response. I can't go to this. I'm going to be boxed in in a little spot on a stage for 25 minutes. But you only get that from repeated exposures. If you only have one event to do it, you're not going to combine those factors. So what I'm trying to say on this is that if you're trying to do this, realize that you're not going to be able to write out a perfect script to be a great storyteller. You need to go out and do it. And you need to do it enough where you can try different techniques and alternate variations. If you're looking for them, apart from telling stories on stage, maybe that's not your job. I know some people that work with improv comedy groups and they're not really funny people, but they just like to learn those techniques. Uh, I know people that join clubs like Toastmasters where they get the opportunity to present uh, but they seek out different opportunities to engage the audience, really to learn more about themselves and the stories that they're effective at telling. Continuing on uh, with our point of telling stories that, that are relatable, and I think in your book, Converted, one particular story really caught me, uh, which is a very interesting analogy you made about how a lot of the digital marketing work is being done. Uh, and you compared it to someone walking into a bar and asking the first person to, you see to marry you. Yes. Which uh, I thought really <laughs> perfectly encapsulates the, the absurdity of, you know, the, the type of work that's being done. So can you, you know, walk us through uh, what good digital marketing should look like and what can companies do to, you know, create that more effective interactions with customers? Yeah. Let's first, let's first talk about the origin of that story. So mm -hmm. for, for digital marketing, it's very transactional. The reason for this is just a longstanding history where companies want to know if they're spending money, what are they getting for it? And so everything is very short term. It's to say, I went out and somebody has to do exactly what I want at this moment, or I wasted my time. And this is kind of the nature of storytelling is that you look at things that are in the business context and you're trying to say, well, what, what is the equivalent of this? And, and you start thinking about just a situation, you know, very personal and be like, well, what, what would happen if, you know, you went into a bar or like a real world sales situation and you did that? Now, of, of course, I use it in the book. I say 
I use a very polite example to say you're asking somebody to marry them, but it can be any self-centered interest at that time. But right away, people can put themselves in that scenario and say, wow, that really wouldn't work in real life. And they say, well, why do we do it online? And you kind of get that mismatch. And that's like, well, that's a great question. Like, well, that's what I'm looking at in terms of success. Like, but is that really the best way to do anything? And so the reason why we presented in the, in the book is really something that carries itself all the way through. When the book was originally written, I was trying to figure out, I said, look, here we have a data, which nobody reads data books. Let, let's be honest. Okay. You read data books. If you need a job, like if you have a job interview, like, oh, I really need to brush up on my SQL or my Python. Let's get a data book, right? You get an O'Reilly book that all these books have animals on the covers. And it's like, ah, I'm ready for my interview. <laughs> But once you have the job and you're, you're sitting around to nine o'clock at night and you're like, well, I have, I got the Xbox, I got, you know, I got Disney plus I have this data book. You're not reading a data book. All right. You, nobody has to be polite. No one is ever going to come to me and be like, so you wrote this book and, and I'm so excited to sit at home at night and read it. Nobody does. Nobody does it. I don't even do it. Uh, and it's my book. So one of the things that I tried to carry through was I said, well, what is an interesting story? What connects with people. And there's a story just about relationships, about how we interact face-to-face with people in real life and the disconnect between what really happens online with how we interact with businesses and how how silly those interactions are. So throughout the entire book, you, there's just this, and I, I, don't, I don't beat it to death, but there's this kind of this continuing line just to say, what if, what if you actually what if you actually treated and engaged customers, you know, the way that you do people in real life? What if you built that relationship? What would those contrasts be like? And that way is just a way of me anchoring into people and be like, see how some of these things we do are really silly, just to get them not only to understand where we're coming from, but also to challenge you. Be like, yeah, why do we do that? That is kind of ridiculous. That's not defensible. And so that's why we start early on just that, with that basic metaphor to say, we're so short-term focused that I don't care about the metrics in business. I don't care about financial accountability. I simply say, is this the right way for anybody to treat anybody else? And if it happened to you, if you were on the opposite side and you saw somebody come up first time meeting them and they proposed to you, like, that, that's not going to work. Or worse off, for the people that say yes, like, who are those people? Like, <laughs> like you propose to someone the first time you meet them and they say yes. Are you going to question that decision to be like, maybe these aren't the best people? And, and everyone's like, God, that's so ridiculous. Who would possibly do this? And you're like, well, this is exactly what most modern marketers do. And now we have a story. Now we have a common frame of reference that we can start to build on. So I think the real question is, have you been watching the Netflix show called Love is Blind? <laughs> I have not. I am so behind on my net. This, this book writing thing consumes so much time. <laughs> I thought writing the book would be easy. I am so behind. So for any of you... Uh, Listeners out there, if you have suggestions as to what I should watch on Netflix, uh, open to those suggestions. You can just fire me a note on LinkedIn and be like, "Watch this." But no, I haven't seen that. Series. I don't. No, it's just it's it's a it's a show basically where they they meet in pods and they they don't see each other and they talk for like a week and then they're supposed to propose without meeting each other and then they go on like this engagement party, um, essentially, and then a few of them actually end up getting married at the end. It's a really weird show. Uh, but that's what I thought about. Even having a week is is better than what most marketers do in terms of building relationships. And um, you know, from a larger marketing side, uh, I was I was speaking to uh, a, a gentleman who's a, a fantastic restaurateur out of New York City, 
And I asked him how he looks at it, how he looks at this balance of data. And he actually has an interesting uh, analogy that I love. He's like, he's like, it's very similar to the Wizard of Oz. You guys have both seen the Wizard of Oz, right? All right. So he's like, he's like, look, he's like, you need three things in business. He's like, you need a head, which is your data, your intelligence, your intellect, right? To be able to see the world rationally. He's like, you need a heart, which is kind of that stuff that, you know, you can't measure, but you feel that relationship, that very human connection. And he's like, and you need the courage to do something with it. He's like, you need all three things. He's like, you can't get around just being about the data. He's like, if you present data in front of a whole bunch of people, my sense is it's not going to connect with people because they don't have a reason to care. And if you give them a reason to care, well, now they can relate. But you can't just do all emotional. You need that balance. It's like, okay, this is your heart, and here's the data to support it. And then I'm also going to give you the strength and the confidence to say this is the right path, and you can do this. And I just love the way that he phrased these three things because I think they're so important. Uh, and I, you know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago, and it's still been rattling in my head ever since that when you look at it, you can't really make a case that you can replace one or the other. Some people would be like, we can be wholly data-driven. I don't think you can. And I don't think you can be entirely emotional or just plan how you feel in your intuition. You need that balance. And then you also need that third part to say, can I act on what I see? For sure. And, and even with you know the data-driven approach, there's the problem of you know having a so much data, having too much data, uh, which is the case with a lot of companies these days, especially at, at Google for a company with such a huge scale. I do wonder, you know, as a chief measurement strategist, what's your strategy dealing with data at such a high scale? How, how do you not get lost in it? Or should we care about one customer's story when you have that many people you need to deal with? So the, the first thing I realize is that more companies have more data than they know what to do with. There's this inherent belief that data has value, which is a reasonable case to make. And therefore, the more data I capture, the more value I capture. So it's kind of like a land grab of all these resources. But there's a disconnect to say, what do I do with it? So I capture a lot of data and you, you kind of like see these charts like, okay, step one, capture data. Step two, a bunch of question marks. Step three, profit. It's like, okay, what's step two? And sadly, they'll be like, well, we'll get data scientists. We'll fill that gap and we'll tell us what to do. And even for them, they kind of throw up their hands and like, well, how do we connect all these? And so I think that a lot of companies have overbalanced on collecting data with the hope that eventually they'll figure out how to apply it. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. So I think a lot of companies are just sitting there with data that they don't apply. Now, what you start to find out over time is that there are what I would call data sets or insights that kind of bubble to the top. And I use this again because I use relationship metaphors and that's what kind of carries me through this entire thing is to say, it's very similar to how when you're meeting other people, when you meet someone new, you're not necessarily starting off with a clean slate to be like, oh, well, I've never met anybody before. I don't know what to look for in relationships. I, I always kind of joke when people say, well, this is a red flag for this person. Like, oh, so you're, you're still in touch with your, your ex frequently. Like, that's not a good thing. Those types of heuristics, the same apply within business to say with data, there's certain signals that we point to that are valuable, others that are not. Um, you know, I, 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 like I said, I use my wife in examples on this. When we started dating, you know, she had that person in her life. She had her grandmother who could look at people and say, look, I've been on this earth for, you know, nearly nine decades I can tell if this person is going to be good or not. And we all have these people and they always turn out to be right in their predictions. Like you can just look at someone and figure it out. 
And it's the same thing with companies is that they just need to figure out, well, what are those dimensions? How do we build that same type of intuition and instinct so that we can look at our customers and say, which customer relationships are going to be great for us or not? And oftentimes it doesn't involve all the data they're capturing, but it does involve the right techniques and the right approaches to make sense of the data. And so that's kind of where companies are confronted with right now is that they're capturing a lot, but when you really distill it down, does all of it matter? For most companies, the answer is no, but because they haven't started to apply it, they actually haven't come to that conclusion themselves. So it's like, well, sometime eventually we'll figure out how to use this. And then they'll kind of learn that out of all the information they captured, maybe five or six things are really going to drive most of their business. I think that's something that overcorrection we made almost as a society when data started becoming so important, then we're like, okay, let's try to get all this data. And then yep. we got to a point where we're like, oh, okay. And I think it's so interesting, you know, this idea of, we've talked to a lot of technical people and said, this is why technical people need to develop this skill. But I, I kind of want to flip that really quick uh, because I feel like we spend a lot of time saying technical people need to become better storytellers. But what are things that technical people do really well in storytelling that non-technical people can learn from? I would say that I think technical people have a greater amount of source material to pull from. <laughs> like they, they get to observe the data. They get to see what's happening inside these interactions. And, and so, for instance, a lot of the stories that I write in the book uh, come from the perspective where not necessarily that they were firsthand experiences with people in the real world, but they were experiences where you look at the data and you can observe those stories and those lessons. And so for a business context, in order to make it relevant, let's say you're an online retailer. You don't have a physical store. You can't observe people firsthand interacting and playing with your products unless you can get through that data. And if you're not a data person, you're kind of stuck. You have to, somebody else has to tell you the story. But if you're a data person and you can go through there and you can say, wow, this is what's actually happening. And you then know how to tell that story. That's the best place to be. And so you really just have more material to pull from than other people in the organization who can go by previous experiences before that company, intuition, things other people are doing. Data people can live that firsthand. To close out every one of our episodes, we have this segment called Suspenders. It works like this. We ask you a fun, random question that's unrelated to anything at all. Okay. And you give us any answer you feel like. All right. Oh, this will be fun. Go hit me. All right. Question of the day. What is an incredibly strong opinion that you have that is completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things? Oh, who's going to win tomorrow's football game with the 49ers? Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Sports, sports, sports are things. I, I was talking to a gentleman, uh, actually a, a good friend of mine um, down at UCLA is a diehard Green Bay Packers fan. And for those of you that are interested in American football, uh, that team is playing the hometown team here, the San Francisco 49ers. We recorded this episode a while back. And when this episode comes out in February, the NFL season is obviously over. But you get his point. It is completely unimportant. We'll forget about that game uh, very, very shortly. That I would say is any predictions about the future. If you really want to go further, you can talk about my perspective on on crypto and NFTs. Uh, I'm not sure it's important to anybody. Uh, I'm sure Guad has a thing to the same. Oh, I mean, we could talk about this for a whole episode. If you can fit it in 
uh, before you have to leave her. Sure. No, no, no. They had, they had like, uh, they always have these threads on, on Reddit where it was like, well, what can you do to trigger this group faster than anyone? It's like, if you ever put anybody there with like NFTs, I'm sure I could probably do it. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm mindful of doing it because the only time where those opinions become incredibly important is that inevitably someone 10 years, 15 years down the road, when you get your prediction wrong, brings it up as evidence for why you're unqualified to make any determinations <laughs> about the future of some type of emerging technology. So I'll refrain from that. <laughs> Generally, if you were to ask me anything about sports or what's happening on blockchain, uh, I think it would fall into that category. For sure. I, I love the answer. Very cognizant of how the internet works. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key insights and learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week we had someone truly amazing, Chief Measurement Strategist at Google, Neil Hoyne. He is a perfect intersection of marketing, data, sales, and technical. So we got someone who's applied in kind of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, right off the bat, I think one of the most important things we talked about uh, is that as someone in a technical role, we would tend to think that, you know, communication or storytelling is a skill that uh, technical people would be lacking. But it is also important to remember that as someone in a technical role, we also have the unique storytelling advantage in that we have the closest access to the source material, which is the data, the technicality. You know, that's important to keep in mind that we're actually off to a great start in storytelling because we have plenty of materials to start with. Yeah, and kind of double clicking on that too, it's something like we talk to a lot of amazing technical people on this show because something that is often overlooked is people think, oh, technical people are great, but they have to develop their storytelling. That's what they're missing. But we talked about that with Neil this week about turning on its head and actually saying, hey, as technical people, we have unique access to storytelling techniques, not only unique access to data, but the unique ability to take a lot of data, dissect it and understand it and find key learnings from it is such a crucial part of effective storytelling. Because one of the key things we talked about with Neil was this idea of simplicity, how different cultures have different types of stories that interact with us differently. So one of the crucial things is kind of distilling that to simple stories that everyone can connect with. And you know, technical people are pretty adept at distilling information. So taking those known skills you have and applying it to storytelling is really crucial. And you know, another thing that we were talking about, Kevin, was this idea that every storyteller is different. What I'm saying is that each storyteller has different skills and strengths. And the crucial part and something we love to do on our show is to distill all these different types of storytelling and find skills that work for you. Something Neil talked about a lot was that there are things that amazing storytellers do that doesn't vibe with him, that he's tried but feels inauthentic. But there's things that amazing storytellers do that he's learned, he's tried, and works really well with him. I think that's the most crucial part of this episode is the idea that there are things that different storytellers are good at that you may not, that may not work for you. But it's about trying different types of storytelling things, different types of tools, and expanding that toolbox. 
That's what we love about this show. Not every single storytelling technique is going to work wonders for you because it worked for uh, the amazing people we talked to. But learning parts of it, adapting it, and listening, that's crucial to becoming your own unique, fully formed storyteller. And to be able to get enough trials to try things out and practice and, and hone your skills, don't just wait for that one big final presentation to tell your story. As Neil told us about, the storytelling can be an ongoing process. You can have multiple interactions with your stakeholders or with the customers, rather than just at the occasion of, you know, that that one big campaign or or, or one big meeting. You know, as you're pulling your data and you're looking at your numbers and signals, talk to your business stakeholders and try to communicate your findings with them. See if there's anything interesting there, and and see what、uh, they want to look for next, so that you're connecting with their worldviews and values. And that is storytelling, and that is how you improve. Not only will you be able to get enough practice at storytelling and communicating, but this is how you do effective analytical work. Can I say it better myself? This has been another great episode of the Men and Student Placitai. Make sure to check out Neil Hoyne's book, Converted: The Data-Driven Way to Win Consumers' Hearts. Available on shelves February twenty-second. I'm Gorev. I'm Kevin. Leave us a、uh, comment or review、uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, and let us know what you're thinking. Yeah, and follow us at LSPT Pod on Instagram, and connect with us. We really want to hear more from you, and we want to hear about your stories too. Have a good one.、Uh, you know the the thing that you're doing, which I think is important, is that、um, simply for audiences to recognize, and I push this even with UCLA, was that.、Um, You know, you need to look at storytelling as probably one of the most critical skills, but most underrated, because we all are storytelling is human. So we're like, "Fuck, I can tell a story. Who can't tell a story?" And you're like, "No, no, really, telling a story to a large audience that intrigues everyone when they have no reason to be there—that is a hard skill that even I haven't mastered. But you need to start somewhere." And so the fact that you're you're continuing to evangelize the importance of that and and bring on guests that will talk about it、uh, is all helpful in getting people to really carry the recognition and respect for it that it deserves, in my opinion.